Today is a crossover episode with the Morality of Everyday Things podcast. And what that means is I got together with the host of another podcast, we talked for an hour, and we're going to publish it on both of our feeds. So if it sounds sometimes like you're listening to someone else's podcast, it's because you are. Today with the Moet podcast, Liberal Democracy, the good sides, the bad sides, and whether it's the best we can do. I'm Cliff Mark, and this is Good in Theory. Hi, guys. Welcome to a crossover episode. Uh, today, we're talking with Cliff Mark from Good in Theory. You may, if you listened to the last episode, recall that I mentioned that I'm a big fan of his podcast. Such a big fan, I actually reached out to him, and he was willing to uh, willing to give some time and have a chat with us. Great, Great. how you doing? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. I'm really I'm really glad we got to do this. So, for Good in Theory listeners, this is Jake and Anthony. They do a podcast called The Morality of Everyday Things, and they take questions like: Should billionaires exist? Is it wrong to keep pets? Is there anything wrong with running red lights on your bike? And uh, they discuss the ethics of them. They apply philosophical frameworks. They're both really sharp philosophically, and uh, the pod is a lot of fun. So I recommend it. I listen to it. It's called The Morality of Everythings, of Everyday Things, or as I like to call it, uh, the Moet Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's like fine champagne, right? <laughs> and Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you guys, was that intentional? Because I didn't realize Good in Theory was going to be Git when I did it. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, that's how it turned out. You know, actually, uh, ironically, I made a, a mistake and I put our um, URL as M-O-E-D-T, uh, forgetting that every day is a single word. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, today we're going to be discussing with Cliff, uh, big question, is liberal democracy the best that we can do? Um, for, for those who don't know or didn't hear me in the last episode, Cliff runs an excellent podcast called Good in Theory. It's about political theory. Um, he talks through Plato's Republic and uh, amongst other discussions with uh, eminent philosophers. Yeah. And uh, the reason we came up with this question, is liberal democracy the best we can do, is because, I guess because liberal democracy has a really good reputation, right? I personally came up during the end of the Cold War, and under those conditions, democracy was just almost synonymous with good government. You didn't really get, or I didn't really get my education much critique of liberal democracy. So we thought it would be a good crossover to discuss whether, you know, democracy really is the worst form of government except for all the others, mm -hmm. you know? What can we really say in favor of liberal democracy that will stand up to some scrutiny? Mm -hmm. And I mean, speaking on behalf of both of us, we grew up after the Cold War. I grew up my entire life in the UK yeah. and had a more... Cliff, you are so old. Uh, <laughs> old <as the> <laughs> And had a and had a more like uh, well you grew up across different parts of Europe right yes um, I, I grew up in different parts of Europe and interestingly my mum uh, is Bulgarian so I yeah. have some insight into what it was like to actually live under the communist regime behind, behind the Iron Curtain yeah um, but yeah I, effectively that's kind of been the norm for us um, and I mean people often package our system together as capitalist liberal democracy there's like those sort of three words sort of fit fairly hand in hand and we'll we'll break that up but um, I'd say what's interesting is at least from my perspective the main part of that I've seen critiqued has been the capitalism part because we grew up really in the sort of financial crisis. Like we mm -hmm. were we were mm -hmm. at school when that broke out. 
we applied to read economics at uni in the sort of years that followed that. Um, I mean, yeah, for the scope of this episode, we're talking specifically about liberal democracy, but uh, uh, and we've talked about capitalism in other episodes, for example, the should billionaires exist. Um, we'll no doubt talk about it again in future episodes, but uh, yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. It's that, that, as you say, our sort of backgrounds frame our, our yeah. perspectives. Yeah, it's interesting that being just a bit younger than you, we, we basically miss that wave of, of obviously it's way better. And yeah, I think like when I think about the, the political zeitgeist of my uh, at least teens, early 20s was more kind of like, hey man, capitalism is bad. Um, <laughs> right, but yeah, right. I mean, like certainly when, you, when, you think about, when you think about the challenges to liberalism as well, um, I mean, we've seen them pretty recently, right? So, I mean, certainly from us, the UK, uh, Brexit referendum was big and then the election of Donald Trump. Uh, and, you know, it's funny that they both happened in the same year, which really sets it as mm. a marker, like 2016, the year of like, what's, what is wrong with liberalism, right? And the year that all the celebrities died. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Coincidence? <laughs> I think the lizard people were pretty sick of it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, until those two like kind of events, it felt like the world was moving in a, in a generally liberal direction, right? It was the, there's, there's certainly this sense in, in the kind of 90s into noughties of, of like things are, are progressively getting better uh, and, and certainly like a, a kind of move also towards this kind of supranational um, governmental mm. organizations and stuff. Um, so, I mean, it, it's funny to, to, you know, generally when you think of people now rejecting liberal values, it almost feels like a kind of uh, a, a dirty nostalgia for like a, mm. a bygone era. Uh, it's like, okay, grandpa, <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and I think uh, you mentioned Brexit, particularly because that took the form of a referendum um, and the rifts that that caused afterwards. That, that like, we're talking about liberalism there, Brexit felt like a really interesting challenge to democracy. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we, we, we mentioned just before, like, the, the kind of, the, the juxtaposition of, like, democracy and liberalism where, mm. you know, more democracy doesn't necessarily correspond with more liberalism. That'd be, mm-hmm. it's a good example. I was going to exactly. say that, like, it, Brexit is interesting because you frame, if you, when you frame it as a challenge to democracy, I'm not sure I buy it because a referendum is really the people speaking its will. It's well, it should be a pure form of uh, exactly, right? yeah. exactly. So mm. um, I think that the whole the, the whole discomfort that people have with with referendums is uh, really a discomfort that people have with democracy, and the, mm-hmm. they're inter- they're interesting mm. for that reason. Um, yep. Exactly, and it's so deeply enshrined that democracy is a good thing. There's suddenly this inability for people to articulate. Wait, 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 wait. Maybe there, maybe there is a limit to this. To mm. like, maybe there's a limit to which this actually enshrines good government. Like, maybe not every decision should just be put out to a referendum, and then we say because this is maximum democracy, this is best government. Exactly, right. exactly. And that, that I think was a challenge that liberals struggled with because it was generally people on the liberal left who were who were sort of pro remain anti Brexit. With <laughs> them like, okay. We have, we have to honor this vote, but it's we so disagree with it. Well, it's, it's, it's very tough because because you know then they have to make up stories about the people. You know the people is never wrong, but the people has been misled, right? Um, exactly, exactly, exactly. Which, to be fair, like we'll come to some kind of critiques of that, and you know we will discuss. I, I think in in some fair terms, like you know some perspectives over which actually um, you might say that that is not a totally incoherent perspective, but. I mean, again, like we said, like you can't really argue with the fact that this is maximal democracy. Mm. So uh, we talked a bit about democracy here. And what we normally do in our episodes structurally is we, we start with definitions. So let's start first with democracy. We'll talk about liberalism too. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess, yeah, interesting I, place to start is that democracy as we understand it and practice it 
is different from its its origins, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I also I, I think it's interesting and important to do definitions in, in this sort of context because you know terms like capitalist liberal democracy, like so much of this is uh, like modern political mm. uh, like context or or, or loading or um, what's the term? Yeah, anyway, uh, like sentiment. Uh, people can, yeah, but you know, if you sat someone down and said define liberalism, uh, and they weren't, you know, say, you know, in in your position, Cliff, where you'd probably spent far too long having to actually answer that specific <laughs> question. Um, you know, I I think if you took the average Joe Schmo off the street, they'd probably struggle to give like a coherent definition of it of that term. Yeah, yeah. But we're fortunate but today. We do have Cliff. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, look, uh, don't get your hopes up too much because there are serious academics who spent their career trying to define liberalism and will tell you that you cannot give a coherent definition of it um, that accounts for how most people use it. Anyway, one thing I want to mention, another important thing about definitions in this context is that the words we're talking about, liberty, democracy, liberalism, these aren't just analytical terms, right? They're value terms. They're highly charged ideologically. Mm. And that means they're contested. People use them to mean different things. Mm. So, you know, for example, North Korea calls itself a democracy and maybe it means something else than when America calls itself, yeah. itself a democracy. So all to say, there's a lot of different uses and we need to be careful just to clarify what we mean uh, when we use these terms. So I could totally see how, like, in an American context, you know, someone might say something and, you know, someone would be like, oh, it's such, like, a liberal perspective. And it's like, well, I mean, you know, no, neither the Republicans or the Democrats are arguing that we shouldn't be a liberal democracy, actually, in, right. in, like, the kind of actual meaning of that word. But, like, you would, you know, you say, oh, it's such a liberal thing to say. Mm. Well, I mean, and that's a legitimate use. That's why it's just, it's important that we got to clarify what we mm. mean. So, democracy. Let's take the first, the second part first. The Greek word is demokratia, which is something like people power. And the essential idea of a democracy is that the people are ruling themselves. So popular sovereignty, that kind of thing. Um, and the association, the historical association here is, of course, with these ancient democracies with Athens, where the people were there assembled, debating with each other, making decisions together. Uh, but, you know, notice that whilst that's the association that philosophers and theorists and ideologists are trying to, that's the bell people are trying to ring in our mind when they talk about democracy, that's actually very different from how our democracies work. Because ancient democracies were direct. It was the people there themselves making laws, deciding to kill Socrates and whoever else, deciding to go to war. Yeah. Uh, mm. Whereas, obviously, when the people vote, like in the Brexit referendum, all the actual people with political power are up in arms freaking out. Um, and that's because modern democracies are representative, right? We don't do the politics ourselves. We elect, uh, we, we elect our rulers and they go represent us, but we're not actually doing it ourselves. So there's a big contrast between ancient direct democracy and modern representative democracy. So, I mean, you're, you're highlighting the main difference is whereas we vote people to make our decisions in politics. For example, like in the UK, we have members of parliament. In ancient democracies, citizens would attend their governments and decide for themselves. But how, how did that like work in practice? And, you know, does that mean from an ancient Greek perspective, our current system doesn't actually look that democratic? Yes. Okay. So to take the first part, how did it work? It was 
kind of that if you were in town that day or if you wanted to participate in the assembly and they would have these all the time, regularly every week, uh, you would just turn up at this big amphitheater like uh, place on a hill, uh, the Pnyx in Athens, and you'd listen to the speakers, you'd maybe heckle a bit, you could get up and speak, you had the right okay. to yourself, but usually it was a few kind of posh guys who were doing it, and uh, and you could vote on whatever emotions were put to the assembly. So you were doing it. All their stuff was fun, right? referendum <laughs> of, of whoever turned up. Um, yeah. So that's how it worked. And um, to your second question, whether today's democracies would seem democratic to them, absolutely not. By any kind of, <laughs> even even... Not even the ancient Greeks would say this is not a democracy. They would say it's an oligarchy. There's very, very few people making the laws. Um, and you get this throughout political theory, right? So there was this big thing in the Enlightenment. French continental thinkers were getting interested in English government because it seemed like it was going pretty well. Uh, is it a republic? Is it a democracy? And Rousseau, in the social contract, he says, these Britons... They're slaves, except for the one day when they elect their own like slave masters. Um, so, <laughs> so unless you are actually exercising government, a lot of democratic theorists would say, "Look, this isn't a democracy, and it's it's intentional." Right. I, I look, I'm not going on. I want to throw in more detail, which is the American founding fathers, and you get this a lot whenever you have these big complaints about election results and the electoral college. The, they designed the American Republic specifically to not be democratic. They don't want the people involved. Um, so, right. According to the ancient perspective, we wouldn't be democratic, but we're talking about the kind of democracy we do have because nonetheless, modern democracies still build themselves as somehow adhering to popular sovereignty because we get to eject bad leaders um, if they if they do a bad job afterwards. Got you. So, so we can say that, I mean, certainly ideologically, it's linked to ancient democracy. But really, when we say democracy today, it's, it's more that it kind of refers to this idea that people are sovereign, not to the fact that literally all decisions are, um, you know, referenda or that everyone actually has the ability to vote on every decision. We don't meet in, a, right. in an assembly uh, in the sense that like ancient communities did. Fun as that yeah. sounds. Yeah. <laughs> if if, if I want to put it, sound really fun. oh, I mean, it would be great, but like it would take up a lot of time. I don't think anyone, you know, people got stuff to do in the modern world. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's actually interesting. We'll, we'll, I mean, maybe we'll come to this in a bit, but I think one thing that's, that's curious to consider is that like, uh, one of the main arguments for representative democracy, um, aside from some argument of like uh, competency or expertise, uh, which I, I, I don't know that about, <laughs> is a, a, a practical one, right? Like, okay, the, you know, Greece was a city-state and, you know, what if you're managing many city-states, etc. But, you know, with modern technology, it's kind of hard to make the argument that we couldn't just let everyone vote on any, everything. The question is whether that's a good way to govern. Mm. Um, but, okay, we'll, we'll kind of, obviously, we'll come back and co to some of these concepts. For now, talking about definitions, the other part that we obviously want to touch on is, is liberalism or, or liberal. Because mm -hmm. when people talk about democracies in the modern context, it's, it's pretty much, you know, synonymous with liberal democracies. Mm. So you mentioned this already, Cliff, but for a word that is so, like, widely used, liberalism is notoriously difficult to define. 
Now, in the context of political philosophy, liberalism refers to a school of thought that takes freedom, consent, and autonomy as foundational moral values. Liberals agree that it's generally wrong to coerce people, to seize control of their bodies, or force them to act against their will, though they disagree among themselves on many of the whys and hows of those particular matters. Yeah, and um, given that people will always disagree about politics, uh, liberalism's core aim is to create a generally acceptable mechanism for settling political disputes without undue coercion. Uh, so to give everyone a say in government through fair procedures so that citizens consent to the state's authority even if they disagree with its decisions. Uh, I, you know, wow, reading that really gave me flashbacks of first year social con- <laughs> <laughs> the social contract. <laughs> the, the will of the people. <laughs> the, the general will and stuff. Um, but, uh, sorry, I, I, I immediately derailed myself. So the foundational liberal vision is typically associated uh, with a group of European and American thinkers, so from John Locke in the 17th century up to Rawls in the 20th, uh, and that's often treated as a sort of Western political inheritance. Uh, but seeing liberalism as a product of a particular cultural tradition might be more of a mistake. Yeah, Amartya Sen makes this point. So as I argued in his brilliant 1997 essay, many of the core principles we identify with liberalism today, for example, religious toleration, popular sovereignty, equal freedom for all citizens, etc., these can actually all be found in writings from pre-modern Europe, from the ancient Buddhist tradition, and even 16th century Indian kings among a range of sources. So liberalism has taken root in diverse societies across the globe uh, today from, you know, you see it in Japan, you see it in Uruguay, you see it in Namibia. It's, it's very widespread. Uh, and Sen's paper suggests that instead of defining liberalism by books written by dead white men, it makes more sense to treat it as a set of parts, a grouping of principles and animating ideas that, when combined, add up to an overarching framework for understanding political life. Of these components, at least four political principles are common to the various species of liberalism, all of which relate to its core moral premise about freedom. So these principles are familiar to most citizens in the liberal regime, and they are democracy, the rule of law, individual rights, and equality. Super, super familiar if you studied rules in some <laughs> political philosophy 101 class. Uh, these ideas, the minimalist core of liberalism, are so foundational to political life and advanced democracies that they're basically taken for granted with debates about public policy taking place inside of the parameters of these liberal values. Yeah. Okay, yeah, great summary. Uh, The caveat is liberalism means many different things to many different people and has over the course of history. And um, we are talking about the kind of liberalism Mm -hmm. that is all about individual freedoms, individual rights, uh, rule of law, constitutional government, that kind of thing. And I guess that takes care of the definitions part of the uh, episode, and we can move on to evaluating it. So, yeah, what is so great about liberal democracy? Yeah, and I guess a point that you make there, something that's good to be aware of as we go when we're talking about democracy and and liberalism, is... um, while we're breaking down what's good and bad about it, what we're probably doing is implicitly making contrast with other viable or less viable alternatives to that form of government. Um, I mean, throughout history, as we said, like lots of different alternatives have existed from the ancient Greeks, more pure form of democracy to communist totalitarianism, the USSR. Uh, there's been monarchies, there's been aristocracies, there's been fascism, boo. There's been ancient <laughs> oligarchy, anarchy, maybe deserves a mention. Have there been many famous anarchies in history? I don't know. Mm. That's what's in the notes. <laughs> the big one, of course, is the lizard people. Of course, of course. <laughs> are they not just a, a, a secret fascist state? Though? Yeah, they're a subset of fascism. Really. Yeah. Oh, no, wait. Or would it be an aristocracy? Because the, <laughs> the lizard people are the aristocrats. <laughs> the lizard elite. Yeah, and they just feed off 
feed off of us like cattle. But yeah, the point there to make is just that if we're critiquing liberal democracy, it's worth noticing what we're comparing it to that makes it better or worse. And we'll try and be explicit about that. Uh, but we're going to start with why it's good. And I guess there, again, the way we've broken that down is, is, is sort of in reference to values that we like about systems of government and in contrast with things that we don't like about other systems. Yeah. First of all, presence of lizard. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, okay, so there's a bunch of fundamental goods that we may kind of want from a system of government or, or basically be the bars that we'd say like, oh, this is a good system of government because it achieves X, right? Uh, and we can see how liberal democracy can be quite good at a bunch of them. It's it's difficult to make some of these arguments from the society or social context of someone who was brought up in a liberal democracy. So maybe maybe I've just been taught that I value these things. Maybe who you're knows? just indoctrinated. I, I know. I'm taught to think that I'm free. You've, you've uh, definitely but, been indoctrinated. It's just a question of whether or not they indoctrinate you with the right <laughs> with the right stuff. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Am I liberal in the right ways? Um, yeah. Uh, so one one axiomatic thing that we could say is that a, a good political system should should generally improve our freedom. I mean, really, it's 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 kind of the core struggle of political theory, right? Mm. To, to reconcile how we can organize collectively, uh, which necessarily will include constraining our freedoms in some extent, to some extent, uh, but to do so in a way that ultimately maximizes our individual freedom. That That mm -hmm. is the core problem uh, that we're trying to basically solve in, uh, in forming governments. Is that fair to say, Cliff? Well, no. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it's fair. No, it's fair to say, but it is very much from already liberal perspective. So um, the first thing I would say is, oh, the goal is to maximize freedom. One, freedom is even more contested than democracy in, in, in liberalism, right? So what do you mean by freedom? You unpacked it by saying individual freedom. The government stays out of our business. We stay out of each other's business. I value that. I like that. I don't like a busybody, but this <laughs> is very much a liberal value. You're when you yeah. in, say enshrine individual freedom, you're taking yeah. a value that is like core to liberalism as opposed to the other ones. So you're a little bit stacked I, in the I, deck, I, take, but you know, I take your ahead. point. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm going to use an example that is again stacked, but you know, I, I suppose for example, the Chinese government would argue that the Uyghurs aren't are aren't free to correctly understand, you know the brilliance of, of China, for example. Sure. Uh, there's or, some sort of positive freedom issue as opposed to a lack of negative freedom issue. Okay. Or, I mean, if you want to, you know, uh, take one that might be a little closer to home, you could say that if you allow everyone the individual freedom to decide on their own about vaccines and masks, you actually mm. undermine the freedom of others to uh, collectively organize to reduce the danger to everyone. So... yeah. Um, I don't. I, I don't. I think it's like so simple to say. Well, you know, these people like uh, totalitarian governments just say you're say you're free because they're forcing you to do the right thing. There is that argument, but um, mm. the the whole maximize individual freedom. I I want to say that when we were talking about what's good about democracy, what's good about liberal democracy, individual freedom is one of those things. But I wouldn't count mm. it as the fundamental goal of government to maximize individual freedom unless we have a long talk about what you mean by individual freedom. Fair, and fair. it's not going to be do whatever I, I, you I will, want. I will, yeah. I, will, I will rephrase that to a, a major issue yeah. of, of, the, of political theory and formation of government. Uh, reconciling, you know, assuming from a liberal perspective that you do care about individual freedom, um, how we can reconcile that with the necessary loss of freedom that comes with collective organization. Mm -hmm. The example you gave with vaccines is actually really a good one where it's like, how do we square 
you know, forcing someone to make a decision around their bodily autonomy versus the externalities it imposes on the people around them. Right. What would you say is the uh, the core function of government, Cliff? The core function of government, I would say, is to, uh, ooh, I don't know, make make mutual domination less violent. Um, <laughs> to, <laughs> was very to, to, yeah. To, yeah, to live with each other like uh, non murderously. I, I think that there's, I, I think that there's mm. just a lot of functions of government. Right, so that's mm-hmm. why I don't. Right. I'm not. Right. I don't want to throw away individual freedom because actually, I think that's a. I get you. It's an important my, value. My, my, I'm just my, saying we're assuming we're already making liberal assumptions. Like Plato in the Republic, we, he he has no truck with individual freedom. <laughs> this is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, my 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 zealous use of the word core rather than you know important uh, is kind of sidetracked. It might be to realize um, the human good, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've got we've got some other axioms here. I'm okay. nervous to read yeah. these because I haven't got the first answer wrong. <laughs> and he wrote this bit. But, <laughs> uh, what we've got here, uh, there's the. Uh, I mean, I guess it's the same sort of paradigm, right? If you took it again, it's kind of paradigm of the liberalism. Then other key rights that we care about that democracy promotes would be, uh, you know, rights uh, being specific activities we consider it important that everyone has access to. So I guess that's like freedom of speech, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Actually, to be fair to you, Anne, you have made the point that these are deeply enshrined in liberalism. So yeah. you've acknowledged the bias that comes with that. Um, but yeah, it, it's access to certain key rights and democracies tend to be quite good. Yeah. It's, a, it's a little bit circular, but I think a lot of people would think, you know, one of the things that's good about liberal democracy is that it, you know, maintains our rights. Yeah, um, rights but, to property, mm-hmm. access to food and water. But the fact that you might feel that way is because, or a lot of listeners uh, may think that that's something important is because we're from liberal democracies mm-hmm. uh, and it is kind of part of the definition, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, And I'll, I'll, I'll also it. add that people who do not live in liberal democracies also like the idea of individual rights. This is not, yeah. you know, it's not a super controversial thing that we've all been hypnotized into liking. There is a, there is upside. To it. <laughs> yeah. so we, we, we've, we've swung too far the other way. <laughs> um, another good point about democracies is, self-rule, um, which I suppose is just the idea that I guess it's the absence of tyranny in some respect, right? It's, it's just the idea yeah. that people are free to sort of choose uh, for themselves. But yeah, I mean, it, it's also a kind of, you know, a lot of people see it, and this kind of links to the next point, it's quite a natural check and balance when when people have access to self-rule, there's a natural alignment of incentives where that means mm. that you would not want, uh, well, we'll come to this because there's also the, the issue of the tyranny of the majority, but generally, you know, if people are represented uh, fairly, then they will not want um, some system of government that's actually not in the interest of the majority of the people. Um, there can still be, like as I mentioned, some issue whereby the majority of people uh, can agree with something that's bad for the minority. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it introduces a check and balance, which comes to the point that actually liberal democracies generally uh, do help to promote stability. I mean, stability mm-hmm. generally in most forms of government is, is kind of seen as a fundamental good. Um, you know, uh, if you study, for example, African dictatorships and, and democracies in Africa, uh, it's generally better to have a stable despot than it is to have frequent uh, revolts and uprisings and switchings of forms of government or, or leaders. Um, stability, even in a, in a kind of unhappy equilibrium, is generally seen as a, a relative positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, liberal democracies are generally quite stable, uh, generally constructed with a lot of checks and balances. Uh, and, and often, actually, also because they help promote prosperity, that also helps to keep stability and peace. Um, linked to prosperity, uh, you've also got the fact that liberal democracies tend to play really well with capitalism. 
Uh, and that might be considered a fundamental good given the experience of the last few hundred years. Human beings have become much better off. Uh, we want a system that supports free markets to trade in, and liberal democracies do a really good job of this. Now, markets not only seem to bring prosperity, but compared to previous models of governance, they maybe even express help us express our freedoms. And I know, Cliff, this was something you talked about recently on your podcast, right, with the guest when you were talking about Hegel? Yeah, uh, that's right. So the Hegelian argument for what he calls civil society, but we would call the market, is that it gives you a venue in which you can just determine your own wants and needs and pursue them. And this is a kind of human freedom. Mm. And so because we have that venue, we can act and we can become a being that uh, is free in that way. So it's a kind of actualization of this aspect of our identity, of having needs and wants and just they're legitimate, we can pursue them. Uh, I talk about it with Jeff Berkison. It's episode 20, I believe, Do Free Markets Make Free Humans? So if you're interested, uh, go listen to it. Yeah. Um, and I guess this kind of linking to that last one about capitalism and, and prosperity from, from and stability from previous point, it, it kind of an overarching point that uh, irrespective of, you know, theoretical or ideological fundamentals that you might agree with, um, a lot of the countries who have seen some of the most economic prosperity over the last century have been capitalist, liberal and democratic. Uh, so there's a sort of uh, empirical argument that perhaps from a policy perspective, irrespective of what we like ideologically, it seems to just work well as a system of government. Uh, the same way that I think a lot of people will think that there's lots of, you know, Marxist thinking that is informative and interesting and idealistic but actually a terrible guideline for actual policy. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that this is the main line that people give about liberal democracy, that, hey, look, it's making us all rich. This is like Fukuyama uh, argues this and stuff. Mm. Um, but mm. I would say, just to throw a little counter view in there, is that the liberal democracies that people have in their mind, the uh, Americas, Canada's, the UK's, the Western European countries, they also won the last big war and have been severely, severely messing with states that have any other form of government, right? Even yeah. other forms yeah, of yeah. government that have been democratically elected. So, yeah. so, the, so I mean, a lot of this, this prosperity kind of, might be the result of just having, having won and being on the right side rather yeah. than. So it, it yeah. might be, it might be more a case of, yeah, this is, this is the one issue or say one of one issue, an issue with the empirical perspective um, correlation isn't necessarily causation. It could be more that some underlying factor that yeah happens to uh, you know be common to all of the American power, you know, Western, for example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, American power, for example, winning the Second World War, like you mentioned, yeah. as a block um, could undermine. And then actually taking the specific examples of you know introduction of uh, or attempted introduction of uh, capitalist, liberal, democratic values into countries where actually there wasn't necessarily a strong rule of law already or, or, uh -huh. or you know, similar other issues. Uh, they lacked bureaucratic uh, framework and, and, I don't know, strong cultures of trust or whatever. Uh, you know, set those up in, in Africa and South America and actually it doesn't work. So maybe it's not a great form of government. And then also, you know, we can say like, oh, you know, if we look at the most successful con uh, co um, countries over the last however long, that's a very 20th century perspective because the 21st century perspective is, wow, damn, China's growing really fast. Right, exactly. Hmm. Oh, um, there's a financial collapse in the West. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's a financial collapse in the West. Like There's a, a political deficit and now China's doing really well. And, and, and one thing I just want to mention about the uh, maybe there are some countries where, you know, liberty cannot take root. Um, there are also a lot of countries where it seemed to be democratic and maybe even liberal enough, but had not been capitalist enough and therefore, you know, 
the U.S. has a long history, and the U.K. isn't so great either, of interfering with other people's governments if they weren't quite capitalist mm. enough. You could think of you could think of the Congo, Italy, Japan, like Iran. These are all these are all places that had elected governments. And most of the Middle East, that, really. You know, all of a sudden we're like, mm, but not capitalist enough. Uh, so, so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to mess around with it. And a lot of times you get non-liberal or non-democratic outcomes. Um, so that's just before you before any of the listeners start concluding. Hey, you know these these Africans they just don't have what it takes for freedom. Um, <laughs> you might want to oh, look yeah, at the no, individual no, no. cases <laughs> and and uh, see who's who's yeah. doing what. Yeah, yeah. right. Sorry, that was yeah. That's yeah. not that's not a, a kind of like I don't know Western imperialistic. Uh, expression or, or, or superiority viewpoint more more just that um again the kind of correlation is not causation argument like you can't just stick um you know a a liberal democracy on something and, and suddenly it right, works of course is the mm-hmm. point. Yeah, yeah so there might be other things that are important that this correlation that we seem to be seeing in western countries actually isn't explaining fully ah, okay cool. so that's yeah that's quite an interesting critique of the empirical perspective already. Before we go into the list of critiques more formally, Cliff, is there anything you'd want to add to why you think democracy is a good thing? Uh, I think I think that uh, the main things that are kind of in the definition. I like that the people can rule themselves. I I am indoctrinated enough that I don't love the idea that some people are just going to rule over others, even though they do. I like that people have a say, and uh, I gotta I gotta admit, mm. I like I like some individual freedom. I'm not necessarily yep. <laughs> one to uh, completely make property rights sacred, but I, I am a freedom guy. So, so in so mm. far as liberal democracies can realize that, um, that's good. Mm. And and once you say you're a liberal democracy, there's a lot of stuff it's really awkward to do to your own people. Uh, and so I think that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, it's I, interesting though that we we kind of went a little bit down that rabbit hole of like, what's the point of government, right? Um, yeah, and uh, on the on the topic of Fukuyama, we mentioned end of history, and sure we'll talk about it again later. Um, I actually read uh, it was a mistake because it was way too long. But I read his book um, on the origins of political order, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it's interesting that like from what you said earlier about like um, preventing uh, violence between people or something like that, right? As maybe you could say that's the ultimate goal, and that doesn't necessarily align with any of these values, right? Uh-huh. What I'm saying is that all of these values kind of come from a from a modern perspective where it's kind of a given that we're not in a state of constant war with our neighbors, right? Yes. Um, it's kind of allowing us to kind of take one level up and be like, okay, now that we're not fighting for constant survival between other nations and our, and people within our nation, like what's the stuff we start to value? Um, it's interesting that actually like, you know, maybe if you start to think of yourself in the context of a country that's perhaps not uh, got that privilege, maybe actually some of this stuff falls to the wayside. Maybe there is actually like a a, a superseding thing that is the most important function of government. Even liberal democracies and ancient democracies, they have, you know, wartime measures, right? (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. Which is actually something we'll come to. So, like, ultimately all of this stuff maybe is is kind of secondary. (laughs) Well, you you might think that the ultimate goal of government isn't the same as the basic goal of government. And if we do live in a situation where we have peace, then... You know, that's not the we can we can do more. We can aim higher. Mm-hmm. Wow, fair. Okay, let's go through some of those critiques. I mean, that was kind of touching on one of them, but yeah, um, we're kind of semi chronologically. Should we start with? Um, I mean, you you're probably. Or do, do you get like PTSD when you talk about Plato? 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you should say that. I've read as a from learning it as studying it as a student, no, but sometimes from making the podcast, from doing the Republic podcast, sometimes yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, for our listeners who, who like the context, Cliff literally went through the Republic and broke it down. How many episodes did you do in the end? Uh, 30, he broke down the entire episodes, book into like yeah. Uh, so yeah. and you said how many hours of research per episode? Oh, it wasn't just research, but I so. I also didn't just talk about it. I adapted the dialogue and got actors yeah. to do it. So, yeah, I, w- I was doing maybe it was around a hundred hours per episode. So wow. it was, uh, yeah, it was <laughs> it, it was a lot of work. So it is, uh, <laughs> it does it does ring but some yes. bells. But so, but the, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it leaves me equipped to uh, speak now for one hour straight on Plato's critique of democracy. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Buckle in, guys. It's a good well, thing people yeah. usually listen to this podcast to go to bed. <laughs> um, I think the one of the most popular, at least a long time ago, look, the, one of the main critiques of democracy is that it's stupid, right? Because it's just what what the ancient Greeks would have said, even not Plato, the oligarchs, but also Socrates and the Republic, is if you just let the people decide everything, these people have no education. They're not experts. You want someone who knows what they're doing in charge. So you sound like you're you're a political pundit in 2017. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Except exactly. When it was like, actually, people are bored of experts. People. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, so there is this thing where then it was we can't let the uh, you know giant mob in charge because they're stupid. They get carried away with their emotions. They don't understand anything. And and now, two thousand years later, you see the exact same kind of arguments coming from people who claim to be into democracy, right? So <laughs> at least at least the people making this argument in ancient Greece were, you know, they knew that they were oligarchs or supported oligarchy. Whereas now people are like, I support democracy. That's why the people have to shut up. Because <laughs> 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 um, So yeah, we still have this like tension between between the sort of, technocratic side where we need the experts we need to follow the science we need to listen to whatever the government say and then you have um and and then all the populist stuff we say it's just demagoguery it's just people being ignorant but on the other hand you have you know right what you said uh people are sick of experts that was a michael gove quote right it was a michael gove quote yeah um yeah and people are sick of experts and that's Completely fair, considering how little you know experts have done to to listen to what people actually want. So, yeah, yeah. And actually, I think a really interesting point, a specific sentence that that was in the notes um, was um, even experts are early experts in a very narrow range of things, right? Yeah. And I thought this is one that really reminded me of, of the issues during COVID, right? Mm. Because I do find really interesting that kind of argument, like, oh, we're like following the science, like. First of all, as if as if science is a monolith and there's not right. actually a range of opinions even within you know legitimate scientific authorities, um, and then secondly, as if as if um, you know the the if I think about the, the context of representative democracies in the modern era, um, you know there's there's a lot of different experts who have intentionally narrow ranges, and you're trying to synthesize all of those opinions into a coherent policy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there there is no there is no uh, everything expert who can just understand everything perfectly and make those decisions. It's it's why it's difficult to make trade offs, uh, which is why I found so I found it so interesting in the context of COVID, like the whole um, 
Yeah, yeah, the whole we're following the science context. Right. Well, that's yeah, I mean, it it's different to one form of expertise, wasn't it? Politics is supposed to be the architectonic science, right? The one that brings everything together. That's a yeah. Aristotle, Aristotle idea. Mm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the way I like to put that sometimes is that democracy is structurally stupid because if you take a majority decision, since experts can be the only experts in a very narrow thing, the collective will necessarily not be wise in any one thing. Um, yep. There's a contra argument, the wisdom of crowds, but, uh, anyway, that's, that's, that's (laughs) the, that's the big ancient critique. One of the big ancient critiques of democracy is that it's dumb and the wrong people are in charge. The wisdom of crowds is more of a statistical thing anyway, isn't it? Isn't that like the ability of you take enough people to guess like how many beans are in a jar. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Is that actually true? Yeah, is that empirically correct? Uh, well, it tends to work out quite well, but I think it, it comes from statistics more than like yeah, yeah, yeah crowds yeah, actually no, being no, no. wise. Fair. Um, <laughs> there must be like, there must be enough smart people in this crowd. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, so that that would be kind of a, a Platonic or, or ancient Greek perspective. Um, another relevant one uh, for editing purposes, uh, Cliff. Not gone through this much and not super familiar with marks on um, on this stuff. So quick research, but uh-huh. you know correct me if I'm wrong anywhere. Um, I think it, it's hard to talk just about Marx and democracy because a lot of, uh, of his perspective is to do also with the kind of interplay between liberalism, democracy, and capitalism. Capitalism you know, in particular. Ca- capitalism in particular. Um, and I mean, on one hand, obviously, you know, there's, there's some liberal ideals that are, that, that are kind of similarly important. Uh, I mean, the free press and free expression were literally a necessity for him to have even published his own manifesto. Um, the communist one for those who uh-huh. wanted to guess. <laughs> um, and actually, uh, interesting. Like, I think most people don't realize, like, because you see like uh, Marx's Capital or whatever. Mm. Um, like, people don't realize that actually Communist Manifesto is literally a pamphlet. It's, yeah, it's, it's really like short, it's, it's a practical it? piece of writing to encourage political um, interaction. Uh, so it's actually totally worth reading. I mean, yeah. like, it, the same way that you know any you know anything that is has been hugely influential is probably worth a quick, you know, nose through if it's relatively quick read. It is, it is really short though. I literally, I read it on a tube journey. I was like, wow, yeah. <laughs> just ticked off a major work of, uh, <laughs> of uh, historical literature. And, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, obviously one of the foundational rights enshrined in most liberal democracies, along with political representation is that of property rights and free exchange of goods. And it just can't, you can't really square that with Marxism, uh, as, as people probably know. Uh, it encapsulates that kind of ideological conflict that it has. Um, liberalism promotes political democracy with economic and social rights, whereas Marxism might say that this political democracy is, is basically insufficient in the absence of a true economic and social democracy. Uh, and this can't really exist in the context of a uh, capitalist cra- class struggle between the proletariat and bourgeoisie. Um, basically absent resolving that class struggle, uh, the infrastructure of a quote unquote political democracy, uh, really more just provides the tools to undermine the freedom it's supposed to promote. Um, it's closely linked to liberal democracy's attachment to capitalism. Uh, although, you know, in strict terms, they like, you know, you don't have to be liberal and capitalist. They just tend to go together. Uh, long story short, capitalist interests are, are bound to capture political interests, uh, and political interests will then mostly serve to promote the uh, interests of capitalism uh, over the pursuit of freedom for individuals or their or the importance of their individual representation. Uh, individuals and their political will is, is sidelined and captured the same way that 
you know, laborers are, are alienated from the from both the value of their work intrinsically and, and the products of their labor. Um, I mean, it's it's a it's a long way of saying basically Marx might say something along the lines of absent of, you know, resolving class struggle, uh, political representation is really just theater to, to placate people and, and make them feel like they're involved. Mm-hmm. But actually, they're politically captured and alienated anyway. Uh, and then, yeah. I mean, when you consider that in the corp in the context of you know corporate capture of the political system of America, for example, mm-hmm. maybe that doesn't sound that stupid. Uh, you know, you you kind of think of the famous revolving door between Goldman Sachs and the White House. Um, you know, so many of the last uh, however many um, Treasury secretaries have been ex Goldman Sachs execs. Uh-huh. Uh, Ajit Pai, who put forward that net neutrality bill, was you know used to be general counsel at Verizon. Uh, you know, consider lobbying in, in the lobbying industry, political contributions and, you know, private media conglomerates who, who can kind of push uh, political agendas. You know, it's perhaps not a totally out there perspective. I don't think it's totally out there at all. So I want just to clarify, I think a lot of what you said, which is awesome and right on, is that uh, say it in a shorter form. Marx's critique, this kind of critique of democracy is really aiming at the liberalism part, okay? Marx is yeah. not saying the people shouldn't rule themselves. He's big into the people ruling themselves mm-hmm. in freedom. He's saying that when you formulate it in terms of individual rights and enshrine property rights, then the people actually can't rule themselves. Because once you make yeah. uh, private property sacred, people are going to use that to dominate each other. Yeah, it's that whole is that whole political democracy is insufficient without that uh, economic democracy as well. Right. And social democracy. Exactly. We have another one that's um, pretty short, which is um, the, the, there is a criticism of liberal democracy that goes something along the lines of the possibility of the poor exploiting the rich. Uh, and I think this is kind of funny because I don't think it's, it's ever really happened, right? But um, <laughs> in modern liberal democracy. Right. Well, I mean, this is, I, I chucked this in because this is the big, this is one of the big fears in ancient debates over democracy, right? Like if we, if we, if we let the people vote, they're just going to take all of our stuff. The oligarchs would say, "Ah, it's like taxes." Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But today, it's exactly the same thing. Everyone says, "Oh, you know, we can't, we can't have this social program. We can't, you know, we can't have a yeah. public education, Medicare, etc." What's What's next? <laughs> Flying cars for everyone. Hmm. I suppose. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So you can look at that sort of statistic about like the richest one percent pay. I can't remember exactly how much percentage of taxes, but in the UK, I think it's like. It's well over thirty percent of income tax receipts come from the richest one uh-huh. percent, right? And you could look at that as like you can see that as a, from the point of view of the rich, like God, we're just subsidizing everyone. But then on the other hand, it's like <laughs> why? Why is the yeah. it, like distribution so unequal in the first place that that needs to be the case? Yeah, right. And also, I mean, yeah, that's just yeah, isn't that basically just an expression of how much they're earning relatively? Yeah, and the fact that a lot of them, you know, that's their, their income tax uh, contribution is kind of irrelevant. It's more about what you're not contributing for. Mm. It doesn't doesn't feel like there's much exploitation going on uh, from from my no. point of view, but I, I I take the point that you've you've made there, Cliff. Yeah, um, one that we've seen, or you know, people have certainly said recently, um, perhaps the liberal democratic apparatus, the same thing that makes it quite safe and stable, uh, means that it just can't respond to um, to urgent issues, um, at least not without behaving illiberally. Uh, that's kind of like a Schmidt thing that we'll come to later, but. Uh, this is the kind of, you know, if you think in the COVID context, this is the the China was more effective sort of uh, argument, right? Uh, when faced with a major problem uh, that required decisive action, COVID, lockdowns, etc., cetera, 
Uh, and then we can also think on a global scale or, or at least, you know, super national scale, something like climate change. Mm. Uh, they just, liberal democracies might not be able to act decisively enough. Yeah, it's a speed thing, right? The, yeah. Effectively, this is the dark side of checks and balances. It's just that it makes stuff slow. Yeah. And yeah, when you yeah. have policies that seem obviously positive, again, that's a highly loaded sort of value statement. But mm. when you have policies that are obviously sort of positive and then actually takes ages to get them through and there's mm. political infighting. Yeah. And, also, uh, I mean, sometimes, you know, take climate change, for example. Uh, you know, some people, yeah, okay, maybe there's political interests that are kind of driving these decisions. But, you know, some people be like, oh, climate change isn't a thing. And, mm. you know, trying to argue with people about that is is basically i don't have time to argue about this we need to do something <laughs> yeah yeah well it's the fact that you can put self-interest in terms of like the benefits of coal to your economy ahead of like yeah. the sort of uh-huh. collective interest and in, and that's a problem it's a flaw of the way that we organize yeah this is a this is a class classic critique of democracy and of republican forms of government but it's supposed to be slow there's supposed to be checks and balances oh i think it's deliberate right yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's in a sense, it is constructed in that way as well. We, we mentioned, yeah, we mentioned Trump before, but I think that was actually uh, this was a weird example of the beauty of checks and balances. Again, that's my perspective, but it, it, it was they existed in a way that actually slowed Trump's ability to make sweeping, potentially problematic changes. Exactly, yeah. and also, I mean, yeah. get him out of office. Yeah, yeah, because he only lasted one term. Yeah, and this is I mean, a I nice, nice illustration of the point I was trying to make earlier about the tension between. The liberal part, which is all the checks and balances and the individual rights and the rule of law, and the democratic part, which is the people getting what they want, which is, you know, that Trump gets to do mm. what he wants. So, yeah, there is, there's a real tension there. Sorry, Ant, I interrupted you. No, no, I mean, I was just going to say it's, you know, if I spent a lot of time in Istanbul as yeah. a teenager. Um, and it's interesting, it, you know, it feels like faraway places, but, you know, it's not that abnormal to have places that were, you know, democratic and, you know, still market themselves as democratic that have, you know, it, it, for all intents and purposes, been captured by a, uh, you know, dominant uh, political man. figure, a strong man who was elected democratically and then uses weakness of political apparatus to cement themselves there. Yeah. So, you know, you could say Trump is a good example of like, yeah, actually we managed to displace him. So checks and balances worked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Last point that we had as a, as a sort of fairly common critique of uh, democracy. This is actually one of my dad's favorites is this, uh, <laughs> is this problem of like you elect new leaders uh, over different terms and, and things just kind of get stuck. Like th- you, you change your mind, things don't happen. Uh, there's then- a lot of, there's a, pol- a lot of political, politically important stuff that can't happen within a four year term. And suddenly it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. for people to create a plan to, co- to commit to actually mm-hmm. doing this irrespective of change of power and stuff. Right. And yeah, again, China is exactly. a great ex- contrast, right? Because everyone's always scared of their long, long range pl- strategic planning. Whereas yeah. in the States, it's, every two years there's massive elections. Yeah. yeah. You look at something like Obamacare, which like still didn't get through in, the, in, in, in all the time that they had to sort of push that, right? And- yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I, I think, it, it, I mean, it's kind of a function as well of the fact that like, like we're saying earlier, liberal democracies move slowly. You know the the scale of time for for countries is larger, mm-hmm. um, and it's I, I mean it, yeah it's it's a bit like it's a bit like if we swapped who was running the company every six months and you know and it was it may well have been someone who had a fundamental difference in how to run it <laughs> uh, like we couldn't run our businesses if we weren't thinking about a strategy that was multi year right mm. and in this in, in the context of countries that the appropriate time frame is probably multi decade which yeah like you say China if you think about China's um, investment into you know internal infrastructure and and external infrastructure as part of their trade deals and stuff um that's the kind of that's the kind of policies that are hard to enact Mm -hmm. when you're 
your um, leadership is changing so often. Yeah, one other thing that I wanted to say about critiquing liberal democracy and particularly liberalism and maybe even a little bit capitalism is that it's not just Marx, right? There is a strong tradition of a conservative critique of liberalism and capitalism. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that gets obscure because libertarians have become right-wing, but this is like an artifact of the past 30 years in mostly America. What I mean is if you're concerned with community, with uh, traditional values, or even with, say, the environment, with ecology. These have all been very core traditional conservative concerns. Mm. And from that perspective, you could critique the liberal capitalist aspect of liberal democracy. This idea that everyone has can make their own individual choice, that the community has no say over how people live, um, this is a kind of solvent that pulls apart the uh, the adhesives that hold together community. And so this notion that individual freedom and capitalism are a threat to society isn't just a, a Marxist one. This is also a kind of traditional conservative critique. People are afraid. If you care about society, you might be worried about liberalism. And is that just purely because it's promoting self-interest ahead of like community interest? Is it just this idea that like people will sort of run amok looking out for themselves, putting profit ahead of like community values? What's what's the sort of essence of that critique? Yes. Well, I mean, it, even if it doesn't change the people's motivations, right? Let's say we have a, take, take a concrete example of a community. Say you, you live in a neighborhood. Um, it's some kind of, I don't know, you have a council there's always rules about what you can do with your house, how you can use your property, right? And so your neighbors want to have a say about what the neighborhood looks like. And you don't have complete individual freedom. So you can go either way. But a lot of people don't like full individual freedom. They don't like to push it to the liberal, far liberal side of it. Because then, you know, some crazy people might move in, paint their house purple, and I don't know have really tacky decorations. That will, yeah, exactly. But this is a this is a real thing in actual <laughs> neighborhoods. Even people who are self-proclaimed, you know, uh, Democrats who believe in liberty will still want to exert this kind of control over their neighbors. And there there might be reasons for it. You you want to be able to say, oh, we want to have a park, we want to have the this this kind of festival or whatever every year. But if some people are like, I won't contribute, I won't pay, I, I don't want it to happen. It, it violates my property, I'm gonna call it off. Um, some people want to choose the will of the group or the good of the community over letting people make individual decisions. Because when you mm. let people make individual decisions, it has collective consequences. Yeah, it's funny, yeah, when you put it in like that sort of neighborhood level perspective, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it makes it quite relatable. One, uh, one final criticism of liberalism to, to touch on is, um, is Carl Schmitt's, uh, now, Schmidt's, Schmidt's an interesting guy, um, uh, and I'll say a little bit about why in a second uh, if, you, if you haven't come across him. But he argues that liberalism is basically a sham uh, because it can only truly tolerate belief systems that cohere with its own vision of freedom, and it has to actively stamp out worldviews that are hostile to that ideal. That should be 
that should feel familiar to, to <laughs> anyone who's been on a university campus, right? Yeah. I'm liberal as long as you think the same things as me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but, now, but, now but Jake, now that, you're, now that you're mentioning uh, Carl Schmidt, is, is this when you give us your answer to uh, is liberal democracy the best we can do? Do you have an alternative? Because <laughs> as, oh, as the, I don't know if the audience knows, Carl Schmidt was a Nazi lawyer. He was, yeah, he, he was, was yeah. he became quite an active member of the Nazi party. Um, we'll come back to that in a second, but um, Karl Popper, uh, who, who hopefully is also a familiar thinker to, to, to the audience, he took Schmidt's problem, he, he sort of framed this as the paradox of tolerance, which I think is a really nice way of phrasing it. Uh, and effectively, the paradox of tolerance goes, liberalism can tolerate everything except intolerance. <laughs> and, and I guess like when Popper was looking at it, he, sort of, he saw it more as an interesting thought experiment into where do you draw the line? For example, if there's a fascist uprising in a democracy, at what point are you permitted to squash it? Now, Schmidt would say all of that's a deception. Politics is not about compromise between equal individuals. It's about conflict between groups. Uh, as you said, Schmidt was writing in the early 20th century. He went on to become a famous Nazi. Um, but uh, he was writing ahead of the rise of Nazism. And he said, even if Bolshevism is suppressed and fascism held at bay, the crisis of contemporary parliamentarianism is that how you say that? The crisis of contemporary parliamentarism. How do you say that it's word? Parliamentarianism. Ah, okay. The crisis of contemporary parliamentarianism would not be overcome in the least. It is in its depths the inescapable contradiction of liberal individualism and democratic homogeneity. So yeah, uh, the struggle between the Nazis and their opponents couldn't be resolved through parliamentary compromise, mm. as 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 history shows. In the the Weimar Republic, fell to fascism and took the rest of the continent down with it. Almost interesting. So interesting real life example of this: uh, Greek Parliament. <laughs> real um, life. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, not real life. Uh, when, I, sorry, when I say real life, I mean within our living uh, context. Uh, uh, oh, you mean you mean you do mean modern Greece? So I meant recent, recent. You don't, you don't I mean mean recent that. life, not real life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the Nazis are not a fantasy. To clarify, uh, <laughs> just terrible, video games. terrible, terrible <laughs> phrasing. Um, sorry, a, a good recent example of that actually um, is uh, there were Nazis in Greek Parliament. Uh, the Golden Dawn Party. Mm -hmm. um, wow. And they were there for... Just the extreme right-wing... Yeah, they were the extreme right-wing party. who were, They were, they were self-expressed neo-Nazis. Uh, and then it was recent that they... Uh, basically, I think someone, you know, took a step too far or something. I can't remember what it is. Sorry, I, I should... I, this has just reminded me. Um, and they did get kicked out and um, a bunch of them thrown in jail eventually. But yeah, they, it, it was a liberal democracy that had literal neo-Nazis in the cabinet, uh, not in the cabinet, in, in, uh, parliament. Mm. It's, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting problem. It sounds, it sounds maybe a little bit semantic when you first phrase it, but actually it is, it's almost a riddle, right? It's like, yeah. <laughs> how, 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 how can you be tolerant of everything? Or if you are tolerant of everything, what do you do about people who are completely intolerant to your worldview? Yeah. How do you square that? I mean, yeah, the, basically the point is like, you know, take the example of the Nazis in Greek parliament, right? Mm. If you said you're not allowed to be in this parliament, then actually you are intolerant of at least one thing. So you're not totally tolerant. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, then you kind of enter this argument of like, well, how do we communally agree what the things that we should be intolerant of are? Mm. Um, and, and then if it is, if it's not like, should they be in at all? If it's like, well, we can have them as long as they're a minority. Mm. Like, where's the line of like, mm. how many of them is like, okay, wait, this is <laughs> we need to stop this. <laughs> Right, and but and, and depending on where you draw the line, then that throws into question whether you're a democracy at all. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's a uh, look. It's a it's a, it's an interesting problem, <laughs> but 
I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know how much intolerance you can tolerate. I do think that there's something to to Schmidt's line that is just look. You have rules. There has to be a decision, and you enforce it. Um, yeah. You don't really want fair, that to come to the surface all the time. I, I, yeah. But I think it's one of those things where it's it's you know it's a discussion of like you know there's a difference between discussing like liberalism and like kind of you know, philosophy, ideal land versus liberalism in practice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like in practice, it doesn't feel like such a big issue. It's more in the kind of uh, ideal land that it is. I mean, like, you know, take the Greek example, like, yeah, like a couple of them got into parliament and they probably found some kind of side way to basically, you know, use an excuse to kick them out. Um, it does undermine the fact that is it really a free and fair democracy? But yeah. I think communally people are kind of comfortable with it. Mm. Yeah, and you know, uh, even also in fascist and communist governments, people are communally comfortable with uh, oppressing their minorities. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to mention Fukuyama. He has a he has a kind of interesting take on what's good about democracy and what's wrong with it. I have an episode on this. People should go listen to it. But in the early '90s, Fukuyama writes this essay, "The End of History," and then he writes a book based on it, "The End of History and the Last Man." And when he comes out with this, this is right after the right before the fall of communism is the essay. The book is right after. Uh, and everyone's saying this guy would an asshole. He's this liberal triumphalist. He's just uh, doing this touchdown <laughs> dance on, on, on Soviet Soviet communism. He's just saying and his argument is that, you know, liberal democracy is the end point of human political development. It's the end of history. And uh, everyone is aiming for it, even if they're not there. All the wagons are on the same road. They're heading to the final destination, which is liberal democracy. And great. Um, so, did you guys did you guys ever have to read this uh, in your degrees? No, I, I actually I listened to your podcast on it though. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, much better, much better, much faster. Um, no, no, I never I never had to read any Fukuyama. You, I didn't have to. You but did I, I'm aware of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think like I think he's interesting because. He has a, a slightly different take that we haven't talked about, about both what's good about democracy and bad. So he says the reason liberal democracy is going to be the end of history, it's the best we can do uh, in terms of human government, is that it delivers the goods in two ways. One, with capitalism, it generates wealth, so everyone will have a decent standard of living. They can go to restaurants, they can have like a new gadget, time-saving devices, whatever. Capitalist governments were much richer than communist governments at this time. Um, and it also delivers recognition. So in a liberal democracy, everyone is seen as kind of an equal, their own autonomous person that, um, that is recognized as having status. And, you know, you compare that to an aristocratic form of government where there's just the fancy, fancy pants aristocrats and then the commoners and nobody likes to be looked down on that way. So, so that's, why everyone is eventually going to wind up at liberal democracy because it gives you equal recognition and prosperity. There's something intuitive to that. Yeah, it totally is intuitive. And that's Fukuyama's idea of the upside of democracy, what's good about it. But he also has an interesting idea of the downside of liberal democracy because that whole thing that gets attributed to him, that he's this liberal triumphalist, America's number one, that's really not his actual vibe. His, the title of his book is The End of History and the Last Man. And so 
It takes a little bit of background. The Last Man is a reference to Nietzsche. And the idea of the last man is this idea of the bourgeois as a human type. So what is the bourgeois? It doesn't just mean you're fancy and you buy expensive things. It's just a kind of set of values. You're a person with no grand illusions. You don't believe in any uh, very high ideals or high ambitions. What's real to you is profit, a comfortable life, not too much danger. Um, so the bourgeois, you know, they'll they'll work and eat in comfort. They will have a nice work-life balance. They'll eat in restaurants. Um, they don't have, what they don't have is these grand missions to make new worlds and change the world, right? And it's kind of a lack of a sense of meaning. Yeah. I mean, well, they just think all those, and you hear this a lot in the 90s, like this uh, and earlier, the end of these meta narratives, like, ooh, communism, it's too idealistic. It'll never work. What we really need to do is settle on not killing each other, not having mass atrocities, and also some concrete material prosperity for the people, uh, which mm. which is fine. But Nietzsche, because he's this sort of young boy OG incel with like higher dreams, he also calls. <laughs> <them> that. <laughs> I love that as a description. <laughs> well, come on, you, you guys know who he is, um, right? The the yeah. the last men are men without chests. They have no pride. There's no creativity in it. Um, there's not really anything to admire. And so that detour is to say that Fukuyama also thinks this, right? He says, yep, that's it. The cold, the end of the Cold War marks the triumph of liberal democracy and the end of our political evolution, the end of Big H history. But he's not, he's not super pumped about it. The end of his essay is saying it will be sad, it will be boring, and so much so that some people might start try to start history again because liberal democracy is mm. like just unfit for people who have real ambitions. Uh, you know, you know what the, the your description of the last man makes me think of. There was that. Um, have you ever seen Wally? I was yes. thinking that. Yes. You're basically describing that guy, the fat guys in the chairs, right? You kind of forget even the point of why they exist. Yeah. They just it's consume just pure and chill. consumerism. So yeah. uninspiring. Um, it, it sounds also a lot like you've kind of won the game of Monopoly and you're like, okay, let's start again. <laughs> this is like the fun part was when I thought I might lose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think actually this is like a really common feeling even in even in uh, existing democracies. So I have friends who who say, you know, at least when they when they lived in Korea, in South Korea, they still felt like they were building something, like they were still baking the cake, whereas... Uh, when they got back to America or something, it was just all that was left was maybe to decorate it. <laughs> I thought you were going to say eating the cake. That would be quite <laughs> No, I can see that. I, I mean, like, I, I intu intuitively resonate with that. When I think, again, this is kind of maybe more politi modern political context than um, a fundamental issue with liberal democracy. But when I think about, like, you know, say, for example, the modern voting options, um, I don't think it's a coincidence that like the number of people voting is going down. I don't think it's because people are dumber or anything like that. It's because the the, the decisions become narrower and narrower and matter less and less, right? Mm. Because, I mean, at a grand ideological level, we're all pretty aligned. It's more like, I think this specific policy, I think this specific, or like I'm slightly more on this side of the ideology. Yeah, it becomes more sort of micro iterations, yeah. micro improvements, right? Well, I think yeah. I think there's two um, sides. I think that, yes, ideologically people are more aligned. So 
obviously, when people start to hate each other and it's like fascism versus socialism versus liberal democracy, you might get a bigger turnout. Uh, you got a bigger, you know, whenever Trump's in an election, he's he makes people care so much that you get a bigger voter turnout. But uh, I think there's also the real fact that there is not, it's not that just that people agree, it's that there's no, there's no choice and you can vote for things again and again and yeah. nothing really happens. So, I mean, why, why waste the afternoon? Go for, go for a walk or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it is the classic argument like, look, you know, in the context of the UK, vote Labour, vote Conservatives, like, it's not going to make that much of a difference. Actually. You guys, you guys do that episode. Should I, should I vote? <laughs> I think that's I think that's a great theory, uh, morality of everyday things episode. It is on the list. It is on the list. Excellent. Um, so I guess to wrap that up, then, um, is it the best we, we can do? What's your kind of high level answer? Is liberal democracy the best we can do? I would, I would, I would be a little weasel and try to evade the question by saying there's a lot of <laughs> internal variety to what counts as liberal democracy. Yeah. So. Yeah. Right now, yeah, I I would soft pedal the liberal part. You know, I would go less America and more, you know, maybe the Nordic countries. Try to get a little mm. more um democracy in there, ideally, if if the people are inside. And uh I think that you can combine um some form of human rights with uh a greater capacity for collective action that doesn't have the problems that um very liberal mm. libertarianism has. Uh so yeah, look, I like I like I like sovereignty of the people. I like the people to have a say. I like individual rights, but um, a lot of the governments that are li- the paradigm liberal democracies, I don't like. So that's my that's my hedge. What about you guys? <laughs> question question around termo- terminology, actually. Mm. Um, like some you know some people, and and you mentioned Nordic countries. I think Nordic countries like actively would would use this, um, even in in kind of describing their political position you know we'll, we'll throw the term social in there is socialist in there as well or social at least like a, a social democracy or something like that um i think that's fairly widely used nowadays probably speaks more to the welfare part though which i think yes. is, is yeah, the yeah, part yeah. that i i like about your answer cliff and i think the thing that i'd look for in improving the flavor of democracy that we have would be something that's sort of more welfare based i think the yep. main sort of critiques that i'd make of the systems we currently have fix more on the capitalist side and just like improving the welfare of the least well off in society. And I think if, if, if we can do that better then I think, uh, then mm. I think that's the way that I'd look to improve the existing system. But yeah, otherwise, yeah, otherwise it's, uh, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, I'd, I'd actually roughly say, yeah, like on the scale of things, uh, it may be, you know, if I can tweak the knobs, uh, less liberalism, more democracy, more redistribution and welfare, uh, which is annoyingly similar to you guys. Hey, no, um, you're, you're just and, saying that you're a social democrat, and that's great. So you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which, yeah, I think it is is not like you know is probably going to be you know what most people listening to this is probably going to align with as well. Um, I mean, I do want to say though that like I don't think it's necessarily always the best form of government for places. Um, you know. Uh, we mentioned it before, but I don't think that you can just supplant these political systems on somewhere and it'll just work and it's necessarily best. Like, I think actually, if you look at the evolution of, of most political systems, it's, you know, it, particularly like the Western countries, it's decades of, of institutional buildup and you just can't uh-huh. drop that on somewhere. It yeah. just doesn't happen that way. Also, so if global circumstances change, it might not work anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like say, say there is, you know, a case of like, 
uh, World War Three, Russia, China, uh, Western world tension, like it might not be appropriate anymore. Um, so I like I, I, the annoying answer. It depends. Right. But like to the extent that I would actually be like, you know, hard enough on it to say that there are conceivable circumstances where it's worth abandoning even for Western countries. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to bring an analogy from from what we see in business, the the kind of systems of governance or systems of like organizing that you need for smaller companies vary massively from the systems you need in bigger countries, companies, sorry. Yep. And I suppose the analogy is there in terms of like time and maturity of your own sort of state. Like, yep. and, and then I guess actually speaking about that, speaking about size and scale, I mean, we mentioned like, Oh, it can't deal well with issues of like climate change and stuff. You know, yeah. so, like what? How do we start to deal with the issues that are like supranational? The ones that affect multiple yeah. countries. And what happens? What happens? Okay, what happens when effectively, you know, we can basically say like, oh, this is a democratic decision. But basically, the Western world is like, we need to fix this. Um, for the developing world, it's actually a much more mixed case because it's uh-huh. like, look, a lot of our people are like unable to eat, so it's not really a priority to decarbonize. Um, you know, uh, but you know, effectively, we're going to have to. I say we like the Western world is going to have to police like too bad this has to happen because there's mm. a kind of communal global good that we need to be focusing on here. So then <laughs> there's a strange way in which like well that Western sounds neither liberal, liberal nor democratic. So exactly, <laughs> it actually sounds very very imperial. So like like I, I kind of vibe quite hard with the you know colloquially these we like I I think it's the best thing like liberal capitalist ideally you know redistributive democracies but i don't think that they tend to be that (laughs) liberal or democratic as people seem to think well yeah look i agree and i think uh not not only are you a social democrat but now you seem to be almost a marxist (laughs) so so congratulations i'm rather rather mercurial Um, yeah, it may it may be that these are just capitalist states, and and liberty and democracy are uh, are the brand illusion. Like, yeah, <laughs> interesting. We probably need to start wrapping up there. Okay. Um, I think the lizard people should reset the simulation. <laughs> <laughs> are there any are there any shout outs that you wanted to do at this point in the episode, Cliff, or any like closing notes you do? Um, yeah, well, look, I will I will shout out the theory of uh, everyday morality. Wait, is that the morality of everyday things? Yeah, morality of everyday uh, things. I have I have <laughs> a new a, a new Patreon subscriber, Anthony Collius. Yeah, yeah. So it's me. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Fed. Thanks, Fed. And uh, I just uh, thank everyone. Thank everyone for listening. Um, this was a lot of fun. Yeah. So yeah, thanks guys for for reaching out. Uh, I think it turned out really well. Yeah, no, it's been a lot of fun. Am I technically your boss now? Who mine? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You might, you might be like, are, are, yeah. You know what? I don't want to. I don't want to joke anything about you that I accidentally joke about all my other Patreon subscribers. As well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On that note, it's been yeah. great chatting, man. Yeah. Cheers, great. Cliff.